Hello and welcome back after the summer break to September's Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, and you join me on a warm autumnal afternoon in the gardens across the road from our offices in the City of London. So what have we missed while we've been off air? Well, not that much, only an oil price spike after the attack on Saudi, angry rhetoric in the trade wars and increasingly bumpy markets. Oh, it's like we've never been away. Well, this month we get under the skin of markets, we put the notion of Japanification to the test, and we hear why gold and department stores are playing on the minds of our portfolio managers. Listen on to find out more. With me in the studio are three of Fidelity's investment team, lead cross-asset strategist and senior credit analyst Wenwen Lindroth, and two portfolio managers, Jeremy Podger and Bill McQuaker. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hello. Morning, Richard. Well, my icebreaker question this month risks melting ice caps, I tell you, but let's, uh, let's give it a risk and see what your guilty pleasures are. When, when? Can I start with you? What's your guilty pleasure? So my guilty pleasure is zombie and vampire movies. Oh, dear. Really? I, yes. Yes. I just love the thrill of it. I am pretty much watched every episode of The Walking Dead, um, every Twilight movie, read every book. I, I'm sure it's a, a lovely counterbalance to what you you come across here at Fidelity. <laughs> Jeremy, how about you? Your guilty pleasures? Well, I sometimes feel a bit guilty skipping out of uh, analyst presentations on a Tuesday <laughs> lunchtime in order to join the Fidelity choir rehearsal. Uh, so it is that's a great pleasure, good way of getting out of work, and nice way of meeting other people, actually. A good excuse. We won't tell the analysts. Um, Bill, how about you? Well, I, I'm much more conventional, I think. Uh, for me, it was a toss-up between macaroons and uh, a nice glass of wine. And uh, if you push me, um, it would definitely be a nice glass of wine. <laughs> good to know. Okay, well, let's um, get on to the house view, first of all. That's what um, we're here to discuss, uh, at, at least to start with. And um, Wenwen, tell us about Fidelity's uh, September asset allocation and how that house view has changed uh, since uh, we last met in the summer. Sure. To start with the big picture, uh, generally, we're not seeing a recession quite yet on the horizon, but we are preparing just in case we need to make a quick turn. And I think everyone is well aware of the conflicting forces on the economy. Um, The employment and consumer data is holding up very well, balancing out terrible headlines about global trade and the persistent rhetoric around this, as well as the uh, poor manufacturing numbers. Um, So net-net, As a whole, we are taking risk off at the margin. Um, And so specifically in equities, we're being highly selective in terms of the quality and the profitability of the companies that we're investing in. We're staying vigilant on the trajectory of 2020 earnings estimates. Our analysts have been taking them down over the last three months. um, And we are not buying into the momentum into value rotation. And we see this as a dead cat bounce. Oh, dear. Poor cats. Tell me about fixed income. And so in fixed income, um, where we you can see us most clearly taking down the risk is in our downgrade of emerging markets from a strong to a moderate overweight, because growth didn't materialize over the summer as, had, as we had hoped, um, plus political risk is ratcheting up, and several EM indices are at one-year tights. So it is a good time to take chips off the table. Okay, well, Bill, let's um, get some reaction for you. Does this chime with your view? I I think the direction of travel certainly chimes with how I've been thinking about the world. In aggregate, uh, I'm probably a a bit more cautious than the the house view. I'm worried that uh, asset prices across the board have done really quite well this year, and uh, uh, equities have been no exception. And when I pivot and and look to the future, 
I can I can see how we can get to some kind of modest reacceleration in global growth that would probably fuel equity markets for another quarter or two. I don't think that's a, a silly scenario by any means. But at the same time, I can see some incipient risks that are quite meaningful that could be brought to bear. And when I think about the impact of the positive scenario versus the scale of the impact of the negative scenario, I, I see a bit of an asymmetry. I, I think we could... You're more pluck, worried about the, pluck, the downside. Well, plucking numbers out of thin air. Uh, if things play out well, there's maybe 5 or 10% to be gotten out of equity markets. If things uh, play out badly, 20% down um, from you know, local peak to local trough, it doesn't sound ludicrous uh, to me. Okay, so um, Jeremy, if I come to you, are, are you on the glass half full 5% or the 20% half empty side of the argument? I think I'm a little bit more optimistic at the risk of sort of talking my own asset class. I do think equities, Which is equities yes. indeed, I think equities are sensibly priced against the background of fixed income markets, which are, you know, historically at very extended levels. So I think I'd, I'd agree with Bill that there's, um, there's some interesting potential positives looking tactically at the markets. In the last 12 months, we've seen a record amount of money switched out of equities into bonds and money markets. And there's just a sign in the last few weeks, last two or three weeks, that that may be settling down. So in terms of fund flows, I think we could see uh, a few more positive signs. And and tactically, again, I, I'd agree with when when that you know there's some negative indicators in manufacturing in sort of traditional industries, but some of these are relatively short cycle, and parts of the market are now beginning to look at recovery. So something, for example, like semiconductors, traditionally highly sensitive to inventory cycles, this kind of thing, have performed pretty strongly this year in anticipation of, a, of an upturn. So I think there are some tactical reasons to be a little bit more optimistic. As is always the case in markets, these things are, are finely balanced, nuanced. For what Jeremy's just described to come to pass, we we need to see the world outside the United States begin to pick up. Yeah, if if we get some better data from China uh, or from from Europe, then I think that the narrative will there's a good chance the narrative will move in the direction you just have described. My concern is that if I think about the level of stimulus we've seen uh, across the world uh, and maybe put it in the context of 1516, which was the last time we found ourselves at a point similar to the the, uh, the one we're at at the moment, I, I think the stimulus story this time round is much, much more modest uh, than it was three years ago. Uh, China hasn't done as much. Faith in the power of the ECB and the Bank of Japan to even move the dial in the real economy. They can have an impact in financial markets, but in the real economy, uh, I don't think people really believe they move the dial anymore. Uh, at the end of 16, Trump came into power, and that was actually very stimulative uh, for, the, uh, for the US and global economy. The markets immediately appreciated this guy was going to cut taxes and stimulate growth. That's in the rearview mirror today. Other things, I look at the oil price. The oil price collapsed in 15. That was great for the global economy, 16, 17. That's not around as a positive. And maybe the final thing, Jeremy made a, a very important point about what's happening in bond markets. And we do get, we have got this 
tremendous dichotomy between what bond investors seem to think is going to happen next and what the equity markets think. One of the big differences today versus 16, in mid-16, bond yields collapsed just like they've done this time round. And that proved to be quite stimulatory. But if you look at the shape of the yield curve today, the yield curve has got no slope on it today. Now, that's a classic indicator of, at the very least, slowing growth. Go back to mid-16, although bond yields have come down, the yield curve still has 100 basis points of slope on it. That, that speaks to probably more growth to come. So I, I look at all of those things and I find myself thinking, if, if it's going to go well, it's going to be modest. And if it's not going to be so good, then, well, we haven't really focused on what would worry me there um but we'll, let me let me stop we'll, there we'll, we'll I've, come to I've that gone on for a while yeah <laughs> it's good we're, we're going to get a little bit more detail now though on um some of the underlying data um in particular the the picture that's built by fidelity's leading indicator the fly um which of course combines a number of business surveys economic data to produce a projection of where the global economy might be going um here's what i heard a little bit earlier I've come down now to a rather busy Fidelity canteen and I'm joined, uh, as so often, by Ian Sampson, our newly appointed Assistant Portfolio Manager. Welcome to you, Ian. Um, now, you're, you've been looking at Fidelity's leading indicator, the fly, and it looks pretty good, I'd say. Um, but you're going to tell me that when you scratch beneath the surface, there's a little bit more to it than that. Well, the good news is that the fly really does seem to have firmed up. We've had a few shocks thrown at it in terms of negative trade war headlines over the past few months but yet between China and the States between China and the United States but yet it's still held on in that top right quadrant of its cycle tracker which points to positive and accelerating growth but not all of the elements that feed into that headline figure not all of those are, are doing quite so well so what's what's going on no indeed um, only one of the subsectors that we look at uh, specifically commodities is actually pointing to above trend growth most uh, are simply pointing to accelerating growth but actually at reasonably subdued levels now this is quite a bit better than at the start of this year where the picture was almost of universal slowdown. So what I read into it is that we're past the trough, the next move in global growth is most likely up, but we should not get too excited about strong levels of growth. Because of the challenges that there are still there, is that why? Well, while a lot of the headwinds that faced growth uh, last year, so uh, high and rising oil prices, uh, a tightening uh, Federal Reserve, emerging market central banks being forced into also tightening policy, China deleveraging, a lot of those headwinds have fallen away. But in terms of um, the nascent boosts from central bank easing, they've only really started to, to be felt just now. And of course, they have to fight against trade war uncertainty um, and, and other headwinds. So it's, it's quite a balanced picture. We still think that the absence of negatives means that a cycle upswing is, is more likely than not. But it's, uh, it's hard to get too excited. The sovereign yields are remarkably low, pretty much everywhere. How much of an impact is that having? And is that, is that yet still to, to feed through? Now, what matters is not so much that bond yields are low, but how far they've fallen in just a short period of time, in just 12 to 18 months. In fact, if you look across the developed markets, pretty much every single sovereign bond yield has fallen almost as much, if not even more than it did in the 2007-2009 global financial crisis era. 
Now, that was a huge boost to global growth back then, at a time when everyone thought we were doomed. And as a trained economist who likes to think of central banks as an important driver and bond yields as important drivers of growth, I see the same thing likely to happen this time, that despite the pessimism, eventually lower bond yields are the solution to lower bond yields and growth picks up. Okay, Ian, thank you very much indeed for taking us through the fly. So, Jeremy, Ian's painting a, a picture that pretty much supports your rosier view of, of what's going on. Well, I mean, quite clearly, there are a lot of um, uncertainties around geopolitics. Uh, but putting that to, to one side, I think you can see a scenario where things improve after a bit of a hiatus this year. So it's, it's true that corporate earnings growth around the world has been pretty good for about three years. And this year, um, earnings pretty much hit a brick wall slightly helped by corporate buybacks, but essentially the underlying earnings growth is, is, is pretty close to zero for this year. Consensus does expect an improvement next year. It may be a little bit optimistic, um, but nevertheless, the number looks like it should be positive. And when I think about how we view the world compared to perhaps some fixed income commentators, people have been saying a lot recently that as bond yields fell 10-year bond yields fell below short rates, that was a surefire sign, an indicator that recession was around the corner, because every time it's happened before, that indeed has played out that way. This is, though, the very first time we've seen this falling at the same time as interest rates have been cut. And if you look at history, every time after the first two Fed rate cuts, which we've just seen, equities have produced decently positive returns in the following 12 months. So I think the more optimistic interpretation of how things may play out is that we will get further stimulus, not just this monetary stimulus, but perhaps more government spending, and that will enable the cycle, as it were, to, to continue. Let me bring Wenwen in now, though, because um, it emerged in that House View meeting, Wenwen, that you'd surveyed the floor, the fixed income floor, and for once, uh, the, uh, the, yes. the, the sort of normally quite pessimistic um, fixed income team was actually rather rosier about the prospects of, of next year. Yes, you're absolutely right, Richard. Um, bond investors are famously um, glass half empty type of people. We're only happy when it rains. Um, <laughs> but during this uh, one particular uh, meeting we had, I asked the question, do you think we're going into a recession by the end of 2020? And it came back that 75% of people think we are not going to see a recession in the next 16 months. And 25% think we are. Uh, so uh, in the near term, we do think that the data is strong enough to carry the U.S. through the end of next year. But looking at 2021, I would say that we're feeling data dependent. It is not conclusive one way or another. What so the, wait, wait, well, wait and see is another wait, way of uh, putting that. I would say so. And um, I, I guess from my personal point of view, I think the long-term corrosive effect of the trade tensions could start to feed through. So the consumer and employment have not been touched yet by the trade wars, but if they start to crack, that would be a negative sign. So, Bill, coming back to you, you, you talked earlier about nuance and uh, perhaps it's all in, in timing and so on. Is it more the case that you're just being prepared? I don't know if you were a Boy Scout um, uh, when you were younger, but um, is that the approach that you're taking in terms of the nuances between uh, the different teams here? Well, I, I was thrown out the Cubs, actually. I, oh, really? I never got to be a scout. <laughs> well, that's, I, that's another podcast in the making, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I'm still undergoing treatment. Um, but uh, more seriously, in terms of 
what I would point to that could potentially uh, put this more optimistic scenario off track. Um, I think there are two potentially critical things uh, to keep an eye on. And and frankly, I think they'll determine whether we get a recession in 2020 in the US or not. So what are they? Uh, the, the first is corporate profitability. I, I think corporate profitability is one of the unsung drivers of global economic expansions and contractions. And when I look in the United States, I observe that there has been a, a major restatement of the uh, the profitability of the U.S. corporate sector. Oh, as Jeremy uh, was saying. It's, uh, it's well, but no, no, no. I think Jeremy was referencing uh, the stock market view, which has recorded a slowdown in profits growth. Uh, if you look at the national accounts data, it tells us that actually profits growth over the last three or four years has been much more anemic than the stock market thinks it has. And I find that troubling uh, because if the corporate sector decides that it's overspending and it's time to pull its horns in, then that's the makings of a recession. Well, and when Jeremy's been nodding throughout this. Is that you're observing that too? Yeah, I think there's an interesting contrast there. But don't forget the, the listed market is full of international companies. So there's this huge contrast between reported profit margins, which are very near historic highs, partly thanks to tax cuts, and the national accounts data, which is focusing a lot more on smaller domestic companies. Yeah. Bill, Bill, I interrupted you there. Your uh, second and, point. And, and we've, we've seen this wedge between stock market earnings and national accounts data before. We saw it in 2000. We taught, saw it in 2007. In neither instance did it end well. So that makes me wary. And when I look at profitability in Germany, when I look at indicators of profitability in China, I see things under a bit of pressure. In, in terms of the mechanism that turns that profits weakness into a problem for the real economy, the mechanism, I, I think, is the labour market. And, and if we look at the behaviour of the US labour market, we're seeing hours worked are materially down year on year. Again, we've seen a big restatement of the rate of jobs creation in the United States downwards. Um, so we thought we were uh, the US corporate sector, or the US economy was generating more jobs than it has been. Where we are on a three-month moving average basis is materially lower than, I think I'm right in saying, the last five years. Uh, so there's some evidence that the jobs machine is, is slowing. And, and people say, well, hang on, everyone says the labour market's great. And it is. Unemployment is extremely low. But markets move off the changes in trends rather than levels. And I put all that together and I find myself thinking, well, I can see a mechanism that causes... U.S. growth, consumer growth, to disappoint market expectations. And I think that the markets lean quite heavily on the notion that the consumer is fine and therefore we don't need to worry. Could I be wrong? Of course I could. But do I want to take the risk? I, I, I don't want to take that risk in a material way. So running on vapours, Jeremy? There's an awful lot that one can say about this. I, I was, in fact, having a discussion about this, uh, the national accounts data, um, just last week. And what is very weird about this data is that it has been effectively showing a decline compared to GDP growth for over three years. And if you look in the past, after that kind of period of decline, we're normally over and through the recession. We're living in very strange times, and, and comparing current positions to history, I think, 
currently doesn't tell us very much. But I think I, I, where I would, would agree is that there are some pressures on smaller companies in the States at the moment. And we've seen throughout this year smaller companies underperforming large companies. I think in this environment, and also bearing in mind the, the trade tensions, I think it makes sense to focus on large cap companies um, who have more flexibility in dealing with their supply chains um, and dealing with their cost bases than the smaller companies. I mean, is there nothing to learn from history? And the, the reason I, I raise this is because I want to, to make a comparison there with um, Japan, because um, it's been wrestling with low growth, low rates, low inflation for, for decades. And some people are saying, well, you know, this actually points to the way that um, developed economies might be uh, might be going to Japanification. Um, and we, we spoke earlier to Marcel Hubler, who's a fixed income portfolio manager, who's been investigating whether Japanification really is taking hold in developed markets. H- here are his views, and then let's come back to uh, to everyone here in the studio. Japanification is a phenomenon that has gotten a lot of press in the last few years. Japan, as an economy has converged towards zero in terms of interest rates, in terms of inflation, and in terms of growth over the last 20 years. And now that in the Eurozone interest rates are also going negative, there has been the fear that the world economy, or at least developed economies, are Japanifying as well. I don't subscribe to this thesis. This might be the case in interest rates where there is quite a bit of evidence that the same demographic trends in terms of an aging population, in terms of a shrinking population that has held in Japan is reducing real interest rates in similar economies like in Germany or Italy, say. However, in terms of inflation, we have seen a quite standard business cycle in other developed economies over the last 10 years. In the US, in uh, the UK, in Europe and in Canada, we have seen uh, subdued inflation in the five years after the global financial crisis as output gaps were large, as unemployment was high and core inflation was subdued. But inflation has been rising since 2015 in all of these countries, slowly as output gaps closed and as unemployment uh, started to converge to full employment. So I do think that the evidence doesn't necessarily support Japanification in terms of inflation. And in fact, even the longer term reduction in inflation over the last 40, 50 years from the high levels of the 1980s might have more to do with structural uh, factors like the globalization of workforce outsourcing, as well as technological progress, the rise of the gig economy, the rise of big box retailers and Amazonification. And while these factors have defined the last 25 years, they might not define the next 25. So, Jeremy, I know you uh, invest in, in Japan and have done for, for some time. Uh, would you agree the last 25, I'm guessing you do, the last 25 don't define uh, what's going to happen in the next 25 years? Yes, indeed. And I think in particular, I, I do agree with these comments about Japan. Um, I think Japan represents one fairly extreme end of the scale in terms of the mentality towards inflation. I think, uh, you know, within Japan, there is a kind of zero inflation mentality. And we see this in the labour market. It's tight, but you don't see rapid 
wage rises. There's a kind of contract, a long-term contract that the employee has with the company, and wage rise rises again through seniority rather than as a matter of course, uh, and certainly seem to have very little correlation with the tightness in the labour market. And then, as far as transmission into retail prices is concerned, I think retailers feel that they have an obligation to their consumers to keep prices steady and do everything possible to prevent passing on cost rises. Well, um, let's compare th- or, con- or contrast that with Germany, for example, which um, has also strong feelings about inflation historically and something that um, they absolutely clamp down on. But in, in different ways, does that matter um, uh, to, to this broader picture of the way that the economies are going? Yes, I mean, I think they have a different way of dealing with labour pricing. Um, and certainly historically, they sort of had collective bargaining in a way that we didn't seen in Japan. And I think different countries have different ways of dealing with it. Um, At the other end of the spectrum, you have various emerging markets which have mechanisms which are built in to effectively perpetuate to some extent inflationary forces and to bake in an an expectation of uh, sort of perpetual um, wage rises and cost increases that will be passed on to the consumer. So, you know, I'm very much in in the camp of saying, yes, there are some factors um, which uh, have applied to Japan in the last 30 years or so, um, which you can see to some extent in developed uh, other developed markets, but that you shouldn't apply it just just as a matter of course. I I think Jeremy's made a really, really interesting point there. Um, One of the things that puzzles me is, is the... Well, not, not but intrigues me is the influence of wages and the expectation of continual wage rises infl- on inflation. If I think back to my early career, even here in the city of London, for about the first 10 years of my working life, I got a cost of living pay increase that I, I, I strongly think, and this happened across the economy, fueled people's expectations of future inflation and and kept prices tending towards an an upward drift. That's now disappeared out of many Western economies and clearly has disappeared uh, from Japan completely. If policymakers were to introduce wage indexation, I'd be very interested to see what effect that had on inflation going forwards. I I wouldn't be surprised if we we were instantaneously back in in a world of expectations of stable, if not uh, modestly rising inflation through time. And who, who knows what the, uh, the the next economic downturn will provoke in, in, in terms of policy response. So that, that's one thing I'd say. A second thing I'd say about Japan that we shouldn't forget, and it's very easily forgotten, is that Japan suffered the most extraordinary asset price shock post-1989-1990. Equities were trading on 70 or 80 times earnings. And today, the uh, Japanese equity market still hasn't regained the kind of levels that it reached in 1989. It was even worse in property. Now, that had a profound impact on confidence across the Japanese economy. One of the big differences between their response to uh, a, a credit bubble bursting and the response in 2008-2009 is that the authorities have gone out of their way to try and maintain the level of asset prices. They've maybe been a little bit too successful, but we haven't suffered that kind of, oh, I would describe it as generational, intergenerational shock 
um, the way that Japan did. So um, some quite clear differences. And let's leave Japan to one side. When, when, how confident are you that other economies are going to be able to find growth? in the coming year? We do think that inflation is alive, uh, maybe not at robust levels, but it's alive outside of Japan, and it's going to make a return. So internally, uh, in fixed income, our official CPI projection from Marton is 2.3, 2.4%, so rising back up, and that's in the near term, and this is mainly on higher rental prices. Um, that's for the U.S.? That's for the U.S., and also core goods. Over the longer term, uh, we are coming to the conclusion at Fidelity that we're going to see fiscal stimulus. Uh, and even though there's people no people give clear... up on central banks, it's going to be left to governments to, to try and uh, yes. inject a bit of life into things. Exactly. And so, you know, the exact date of that stimulus isn't known, but the end game of that is going to be inflation. So as people begin to uh, expect higher inflation, we do see that coming through the markets. And one thing that I haven't mentioned yet about the House view is that there was almost this consensus between the different divisions that inflation is coming back. And the market consensus that inflation is dead is just incorrect. Um, so the different ways that we're expressing it in the divisions are in fixed income, we've got several portfolio managers who are overweight break-evens. In multi-asset, linkers is a preferred trade. In equities, we like growth over income, and we like gold as well as an inflation hedge. And in our real estate division, they're starting to overweight inflation-linked leases. Okay, Jeremy, how are you playing this? Uh, well, I mean, we take a, uh, an eclectic view. We're, we're looking at stock-specific opportunities. So actually, we're not giving up completely on value, although it is true that we've reduced exposure to that style um, over the past 18 months or so. But there's some really interesting opportunities, I still think, within, within value. My current concern is just how, f how much further the market can polarise between quality growth and value, where the difference between these two is almost as stretched as it was back in 2000. So we have to be really quite careful when we're investing in decent growth companies not to overpay. It seems like the easy trade right now, because at least until this month, the momentum was with this, but it becomes braver and braver at higher and higher valuation levels. Okay, sound advice. Well, we're, we're almost out of time, but we're going to get some specific um, ideas from you on, on trades now because it's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Wen Wen, let me come to you first. I am going to go with break-evens as the most undervalued asset class in expectation. So you're buying them like hot cakes? Yes. And your hot potato, what would you drop? Real estate has recommended underweighting retail property in the UK and in Europe. And I think that's quite prudent. I think the political situation in the UK is quite muddled. And that cannot have a good impact on UK retail. Muddled, that's a good way to put it. I, uh, I don't think anyone would disagree with you on that. Um, Jeremy, your hot cakes. Right. Well, I think I've got to go with Japan desperately out of favour. A lot of stocks have uh, gone uh, gone down significantly, perceived as very cyclical. On the hot 
potato side, I think I'd have to uh, agree with Wenwen. I'm sorry to sort of repeat the message from an equity point of view, but um, I think department stores got to be very careful. They've uh, at least halved their share of retail spending in the last uh, 20 years or so. Things look pretty bleak. Well, we've seen a number of collapses here in the UK and um, playing elsewhere as well. Indeed. Um, The US is is pretty similar. Okay, Bill, give us a lift. What are your hotcakes? Hotcakes, one is is gold. Uh, I I think gold is a very interesting asset. I, I buy the idea that inflation will come eventually. I don't know uh, if the path is going to be lower inflation than higher inflation or just straight to higher inflation. And gold, uh, I think, can perform in either scenario. Uh, and I really like that, that characteristic. Um, if things are fine, then it won't. But uh, playing to the tails of the, uh, the distribution, uh, both simultaneously, it's quite nice. All that glitters is uh, is a hedge. Well, yeah, you can't say. Oh, I'm not sure of what I want to say to that. <laughs> quite frank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and your hot potatoes. Um, hot potato, uh, I think, is the U.S. equity market. Regardless, I think, <laughs> famous last words, of how things unfold from here. Uh, I think it looks a bit vulnerable. If we get a global recovery story, as the fly has been indicating, as Jeremy's been talking about, I don't think the US equity market can lead that. If it turns out that there are problems with the US consumer, I think it's vulnerable. So I'd be wary there. And on the other side of that, I I think Jeremy's point on Japan is a really interesting one. Uh, And if I were to highlight just one area of, of both markets, semiconductors in Japan, I think they might have rallied a little bit recently, but uh, not that long ago, 50 or 60% below the highs. Semiconductors in the United States, at the highs. Now, of course, there's different companies and different qualities and so on, but that strikes me as quite a divergence. Good and interesting thought to end on. And uh, I hope that's given you insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, then you can get more Fidelity podcast content on our sister channel, Fidelity Answers, where we cover a range of topics from investing in China to what the world will look like in 2029. Just search Fidelity Answers on your podcast app and do rate us, of course. If you'd like more detail on The House View, it's published in full on our website. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, just ask your Fidelity contact. Thank you very much indeed to my studio guests, Wen Wen, Jeremy and Bill and to our other contributors, Ian and Martin. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.